My favorite was 24. I felt like every episode, at some point, there was some explosion and his cell phone would have been destroyed. Do you have any idea what type of, <laughs> of, of paperwork and triplicate is necessary to get issued a new government cell oh phone? My, yeah, and then there's, it, by the end of the commercial, his hair his is good again and he's got a new cell phone and his shirt is, I mean, come on. That's so unbelievable. There's too much bureaucracy for that to happen in one hour. That's what you're saying. This is the Mid-East Peace Podcast. I am your host, Molly Livingstone. And on today's show, we have the prestigious Dr. Matthew Levitt. He is the Frommer Wexler Fellow and Director at the Stein Program on Counterterrorism and Intelligence at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. The longer your title, the more important you are. Is that true, Matt? Or sorry, Dr. Levitt. Oh, my God. Oh, my gosh. Jesus Christ. Oh my God, I can't believe you just called me Matt. <laughs> I didn't feel That's so short. Wrong. Yeah, you just I know. I didn't even do Matthew. My whole title. Oh, and now we're talking about castration and there's nowhere to go. There's nowhere to go. It's Is it true? Up. Do you feel that you need to be wrapped by your title in order to feel that you are a significant player in counterterrorism? No, but I'll tell you what really does make people feel special, especially when they're in government and I've been in and out of government is how many badges you're wearing around your neck, like how much mm. access do you have to to classified facilities? That's like that's like a status. It's symbol. weird because I heard badges, which is very different than badges. And in this day of uh, Me Too, that could work. But okay, okay. I'm Let's, not judging you. <laughs> I'm just going to judge you. Okay, so I actually am judging you because when I think of what you're doing, and the research you must do every single day and all the jobs and titles that you've had and what your career future holds. I wonder to myself, who decides to go into this field? Who wants to counter terrorism every day and research it and learn all the scary, shitty things about this world? So why do you do it? I don't understand. You don't get it? It's not attractive to you? I get it, but I also, I used to have that feeling of I wanted to do it. I studied journalism. I went to school in Boston during 9-11 where the terrorists came out of, and I became very infatuated with it. But I saw that obsession. I saw what happened to Daniel Pearl, who got his head chopped off for that same obsession and wanting, you know, to find truth or terror or whatever. And I was like, I'm good. Although I moved to the Middle East, so that was stupid. But why do you do it? When did you decide, yes, this is what I want to do, and every day make that same decision over and over again? So I also went to school in Boston and don't, um, don't made the decision me. there. I think it might be something about Boston becoming a Red Sox fan. Yeah, hot It cool. just brings out the wild and crazy. Okay. So now we're um, going to blame it on Boston. But, uh, Blame nothing. Boston's fabulous. Uh, go Red Sox. We beat the Nationals last night. We're going to beat them again tonight. It's a good thing. Look, here, the bottom line is I started my graduate school in the very early 1990s at the height of the beginning of the Oslo peace process and at a period in time where terrorism was just beginning, modern terrorism, let's call it, was really just beginning to take off. And it seemed to me at the time that 
I really wanted to go into international peace negotiations and mediation, maybe become the next Dennis Ross, who's now a colleague of mine here at the Washington Institute. And as I did my PhD, which was really about negotiation theory in the context of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and negotiation process, studying both Jewish and Islamist extremist terrorist attacks, it became clear to me that if you really wanted there to be a condition for peace to succeed, and I did, and I do, then the one thing you had to make sure is to be able to create a context in which people can take risks and can think creatively. And the greatest challenge to that was terrorism from extremists from either side. And that's how I kind of slid into this. And here we are. I can understand people not wanting to fixate on uh, all the bad that's out there. And I applaud people who just want to do good in the world. But I think that it's important also to be able to try at least to get ahead of the curve and understand what our adversaries are doing in particular, for example, right now, I spend a lot of time on the idea of countering violent extremism. You know, you can't kill your way, you can't arrest your way out of these terrorist problem sets. If people are still being drawn to these very extreme, in the case of the Islamic State, for example, explicitly barbaric movements and ideologies, you've got to figure out why people are being drawn to that if you want to get ahead of the curve. And do you think you figured it out? I've got all the answers for you, Molly. Well, share. I feel like, do you think you're sort of like, you know, when you think of police officers and they're there to protect and serve, do you think through your knowledge and what you're doing, you're protecting and serving? I mean, do you see it like that? Look, I've been in government in positions where, you know, we were actually doing counterterrorism. And now I am blissfully in the think tank and academic world. I work at a think tank that's focused on policy. So we're not kind of an ivory tower. I do interface with government and private sector and journalists and give expert testimony in court cases. I do things that still relate to very practical counterterrorism matters. But I'm not a first responder in any way. Uh, I do like to think that my work uh, makes a contribution. And every once in a while, you you get that kind of feedback. But I'm not pretending that the work that I'm doing at the think tank is similar to what police or federal law enforcement or intelligence are doing. It's complementary, but it's not the same thing. What is your greatest accomplishment then, if you look back at what you've achieved so far in terms of bringing new information to the table when it comes to the really scary things that are terrorism and what we're seeing today and the continued violence and the growing terrorist groups. You know, back in the day it was Al-Qaeda. Now, as you said, it's ISIS, Islamic State. The Middle East just seems to be a playground for this terrorist activity. When you look at what you're doing, what can you say? I'm so glad and proud that I brought this, you know, this thought to the table. Well, a couple things come to mind, but I think the one I'd highlight is the work that I've done on Lebanese Hezbollah. You wrote uh, a it's book. It's a complicated problem set because not everybody sees Hezbollah as a terrorist group. Hezbollah is a political party in Lebanon. It's a social welfare movement in Lebanon. It's a standing militia, larger and more powerful than the Lebanese armed forces. It's a proxy of Iran, active militarily and otherwise, certainly in Syria, but also in Iraq. In Yemen, the Moroccan government just broke off relations with Iran, claiming that they had sent Hezbollah to send weapons to rebels in Morocco. But one of the things I've spent a lot of time on, in particular, is trying to work with the Europeans to understand all the things that Hezbollah is, and it is also 
very much an international terrorist group and an international criminal enterprise, and to get the Europeans to designate Hezbollah as such, which would enable European law enforcement and intelligence agencies to conduct the kind of investigations necessary to preemptively thwart criminal or terrorist activities by a group that's engaging in these activities covertly. So in July 2013, the European Union finally designated not all but but part of Hezbollah. They like to think of the group as operating in these independent wings. Hezbollah itself says these are not independent, but be that as it may, it was a positive step forward. I had the opportunity to testify before the European Parliament on this and made a lot of trips to a lot of different European capitals. The timing just worked out well for me because a book that I had just written for Georgetown University Press on Hezbollah was done, but not yet published. And I therefore had about nine years worth of research um, that I was able to use in these meetings with various European governments and the European Union to help them better understand what Hezbollah was doing, not only in Europe, but also elsewhere undermining European interests. And that's important because under the European Union's designation authority, both of those things matter. Do you think that Hezbollah is being a little bit ignored now because of what goes on in Syria? And that's, I mean, it's actually not such a great focus story in the news. It still doesn't make the headlines the way that it should for all the people that are being massacred. But it certainly seems to take away any story about Hezbollah. I don't think I've heard anything in the news about them. And I live in Israel in the Middle East where they potentially could attack us at any moment and have tons of rockets. I disagree. I think that actually Hezbollah is getting Uh, a amount of media attention. But it is true that in the context of the broader problem set of Sunni uh, extremism, the Islamic State in particular, but Al-Qaeda as well, we just had an Al-Qaeda-associated plot thwarted in Ohio yesterday. It doesn't get as much attention Ohio. because these other groups, Al-Qaeda, the Islamic State, what you know, the hell? they wait, try wait, and carry attacks almost wait, whenever they can. Matt, wait, doctor. Sorry. I got, I, uh, Ohio? What? what? Yeah, Cleveland. What? Cleveland. Why? Why? What? Why? Look, there's still people who are drawn to various types of extremist ideology, and you have people around the world, but including in the United States, whose lives aren't going particularly well and access to social media has, in a Tom Friedman kind of way, flattened the world and and broken down borders and boundaries. And people are inspired to carry out attacks. And this individual purportedly was plotting some type of attack tomorrow on July 4th. Oh, of course. We're recording this right before... The 4th of July, Independence Day. So that makes more sense. Do you know what the attack was going to be? Is this like privileged information or was this in the news? No, it was very much in the news. Um, Under a rock. I don't know if there are a whole lot of details out there yet. And I haven't followed it that closely. But it's not atypical. And frankly, one of the problems we have is that increasingly, whether someone is actually a member or self-identifies with Al-Qaeda or the Islamic State, or something else, or none of the above, increasingly the threats in the West are from what we called homegrown violent extremists, HVEs. And a homegrown violent extremist isn't necessarily (laughs) someone who's going to have traveled to a training camp or received or sent money or been in direct communication with someone. And if they have, it might have been over an encrypted app. You know, when I travel, I often talk to my family via WhatsApp because it's a a uh, strong and functioning and free platform. It also happens to be encrypted. 
So it's a lot harder for counterterrorism authorities right now to get ahead of those types of threats. It's more difficult than, say, when I started at the FBI in the 1990s. And if you followed travel patterns and communication patterns and financial flows, you had a pretty good chance of, of identifying people that you didn't know about yet who might be planning something bad. I guess. Do those people still live in caves? Like Osama bin Laden lived in a cave. I don't know. When I was into the whole terrorism thing, I remember how America knew. They knew all about him. They had practically funded half of his weapons. There were signs that they didn't even have to look back in hindsight. Do you think that that's changed at all? Because you're saying it's harder for us to figure it out with encryption and technology but are we also not using our technology as well as we could be in order to counter that, you Mr. Counterterrorism? There's a lot more that can be done with technology, in particular in terms of making the vast amounts of information that we collect more readily available to us in a timely manner. So if you think about, in particular, the U.S. intelligence community's capability to collect uh, massive amounts of information, it takes time to go through that. And there are many classic examples. Uh, there were signs that were missed in the lead up to 9-11. But even long, long before that, if you go back to the Hezbollah example, if you recall, uh, Hezbollah attacks against U.S. and French Italian interests in Lebanon in the 1980s, for example, the attack on the U.S. Marine barracks. A few days after that bombing, a piece of intelligence came across the desk of senior U.S. intelligence officer that the U.S. had intercepted an Iranian intelligence official speaking to another Iranian official in Syria saying, basically, go ask Hezbollah to carry out a spectacular attack against the U.S. Marines. And that just didn't get where it needed to be in a timely manner. And even if it had, maybe it wouldn't have been able to stop the plot. But we do need to leverage technology better to be able to make use of the information we have. But we've also got to wrap our heads around the fact that our adversaries have much greater access to technology now than they did before. It used to be that governments had almost a monopoly on technology. And now, whether it's communication or drones, all kinds of different things that are readily accessible to anybody uh, and can be used in very, very dangerous ways. Okay, let me ask you a question. It's yes or no. Odds are you won't say yes or no. Do you go to an airport and in your mind racially profile people of who's the terrorist? Yes or no? Yes or no? No. Oh my God, he did no. it. He said no. And it's not even true. Yeah. Oh my God. It's because yeah. effective profiling is not actual racial profiling. Mm. You asked, you asked okay. not about profiling. You said racial profiling. Okay. So you profile people. I think everybody looks around at their surroundings and tries to get a sense of comfort. Ultimately, yeah. You should be aware of your surroundings in an increasingly dangerous world. And that shouldn't be just at the airport. Frankly, airports are among the safer places in the world, especially once you get through security. Mm. But effective profiling doesn't mean looking at the color of a person's skin or the language that they're speaking. You're looking for more suspicious behaviors. And can I you tell us some of those? Maybe maybe we'd US, like to know, Matt. <laughs> I mean, Dr. I'll, I'll, I'll why not, do I keep calling him Matt? But, you know, to me, once you've been in government, you've done these things in government, there are certain things that just kind of stick with you. Like? Like being aware of your surroundings. Ugh, you know, in, like in, in extremists, if, you are, if you're walking around on a hot day and someone's wearing, you know, a heavy coat yeah, and run. sweating profusely and looking uncomfortable, like, don't stand next to them on the subway. Yeah, you give them deodorant and then you run. No good? 
I would just run. I'm okay. not sure the deodorant would be effective at that point. I think it's just if you smell bad, you should be aware of your, you know, I have to be aware of your deodorant surroundings. In, you have in to the eyes. And- I mean, yeah, I remember that from moving to Israel. That was like the first thing about suicide bombers is always to look at that. Something also about shoes and also the way people talk into cell phones, which I don't know if that applies anymore. But there was something about the way they use the cell phone to speak as though the bomb was in the phone. <laughs> Interesting. Interesting, but not true. Okay, fine. So I got a yes or no out of you. Let me ask you a question. When you go to sleep at night, do you have nightmares of all the information that you know? I mean, I would. My blood pressure is much better now that I'm not working these issues in government on a regular basis. To me, there's a difference between kind of writing articles about these things, researching these things, speaking about these things, even, you know, focusing on on terrorism, which is inherently dangerous and upsetting. There's a disconnect uh, as opposed to when I was in government working on a particular threat. It would be difficult sometimes to kind of leave the office, go home and just turn off. But out of government, uh, I'm doing okay. How do you turn off? Do you watch really bad reality TV? Do you go to a sports game and scream for the Red Sox? What do you do? Tonight, I'm going to scream for the Red Sox (laughs) at the game. I will be there tonight, okay? Decked out in full regalia. Profiling Um, everybody around you, yeah. Do you watch shows like Homeland or Fauda or, you know, any given show of all of these, like, terrorism is coming our way and do you say, that's not real, that doesn't happen, or is it actually the opposite and like, oh, they have good consultants on that TV show. That was pretty accurate. People should really pay attention to what they're doing. Did my wife put you up to that question? <laughs> she does not enjoy watching these shows with me because I do sit there and say, that is not how it goes. Oh, there he is. My favorite was 24. I felt like every episode at some point there was some explosion and – his cell phone would have been destroyed. Do you have any idea what type of, <laughs> of, of paperwork and triplicate is necessary to get issued a new government cell phone? Oh, my, yeah. And then there's, by the end of the commercial, we his found hair his is good again, and he's got a new cell phone, and his shirt is – I mean, come on. That's so unbelievable. There's too much bureaucracy for that to happen in one hour. That's what you're saying. And we would so love much, to watch that. So much bureaucracy. If only we could see the real stuff where there's paperwork. I think people would love a television show about the bureaucracy. Yeah. That, be gripping. That gripping. Gr- gripping and, and slow. And it would certainly be a form of torture, which I guess for counter-terrorists would be enjoyable. You know, we have to wrap things up. And I have been fascinated by what you said. I think there were some learning points. Mostly I just found what you said about the TV even more interesting than anything else. I'll I'll keep my eyes out for people wearing coats in the middle of summer. For other people that want to follow along, I know you're on Twitter. Actually, while you were talking and and talking about your high blood pressure, it reminded me you put up a funny political cartoon of a guy that goes to the doctor and the doctor was saying, yeah, the problem with you is that you know too much, which I think is a great sort of self-reflection maybe of yourself. You might know too much. If people want to know too much with you, how can they follow you and see what's going on and all the theoretical articles that you're coming out with your think tank? So first of all, I want to thank you for realizing how self-aware I am. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Said like a uh, narcissist in therapy. Yes. Yes. Seriously, it was 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 more about kind of you know news junkies 
Uh, and I will tell you, I, I don't watch the news. Uh, I follow lots and lots and lots I make of news, articles of interest, but I don't I don't watch TV news or anything like that anymore. It's just it's not you'd useful. be like, that's not real. Uh, but if you want to follow along, yeah. uh, I am on Twitter at Matt Levitt and uh, the Washington Institute the think tank where I work has a fabulous website and all of our material goes up there. Washington Institute dot org. Well, I want to really thank you for taking the time. I know you had to have a couple of coffees before we we did this. And this all could happen because of a couple Jewish boys from high school days who knew each other. Of course, Scott Kahn, my editor, that's who I'm referring to, not myself. That would be weird unless I'm telling you something new, but I'm not. Not um, that there's anything wrong with that. Not that there, yes, there should be no labels. Even when it comes to terrorism, we should not label anything. That would make your job much harder. You can subscribe of course, to this podcast, The Mini Beast, and listen to all our interviews and find out what's going on, whether or not it's real. I cannot ever guarantee, but I think real news can't do the same either. Find us on Facebook, Twitter at Mideast Beasties. And thanks once again, Doctor, the Doctor. Thank you so much, Dr. Levitt. Leave it at that. This has been another episode of the Mideast Beast Podcast. 